Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover a controversial figure in the history of surgery. It's interesting in that I had heard of this surgeon, but until recently was unaware of some of the questionable practices that have tainted his legacy. We'll take a look at his contributions to surgery and how he went about this, as well as review the controversy surrounding him in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The subject of today's episode is Dr. James Marion Sims, considered by many to be the father of modern gynecology. There is no doubt that he made significant contributions to his field, the most famous of which was the development of a procedure to repair vesicovaginal fistulas, which is an abnormal connection between the bladder and the vagina. We'll get into how those form later. The controversy lies in the fact that most of his experimental surgery was done on slave women in the pre-Civil War South of the United States. We'll cover this too, but first, let's go back to the beginning. J. Marion Sims, as he is known in most literature, was born January 25, 1813, on a small farm near Hanging Rock Creek, Lancaster County, South Carolina, the eldest of eight children. He attended boarding school and then South Carolina College in Columbia, which would go on to become the University of South Carolina, and graduated in 1832. His father wanted him to study law, but James was more interested in medicine. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts and returned home to Lancaster. By January of 1833, Sims began to study anatomy and surgery under Dr. B. Churchill Jones, a local surgeon. The apprenticeship style of training was typical for a community doctor in the mid-19th century. Sims trained under him for eight months, then registered for lectures at the Medical College of South Carolina. In October of 1834, he continued his studies at the Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Sims showed himself to have a talent for surgery. In March of 1835, he received his Doctor of Medicine degree at the age of 22. Now, I'll point out that this was roughly two years after he started any type of medical training, and a lot of it was fairly informal. Interestingly, even Sims himself stated that he, quote, felt absolutely incompetent to assume the duties of a practitioner, end quote. After hanging around for some additional lectures, Sims bought a set of surgical instruments, seven medical textbooks, and a trunk full of medications and headed home to set up in private practice. When his first two patients, both infants, died, likely from cholera, he quickly closed his new office and threw the tin sign he had hung down a deep well. Sims relocated to Mount Meigs, Alabama, where his first patient there died of postpartum purpural sepsis, a.k.a. childbed fever, see podcast 3, and later ended up in the state capital, Montgomery. There he set up a shop as a general practitioner and surgeon and began to develop a good reputation. In his own words, quote, When I went to Montgomery, I gave away my dog, sold my gun, I devoted myself to my profession, determined to succeed, if industry and application could command success. I had an ambition for surgery, general surgery, and I was performing all sorts of beautiful and brilliant operations. But it was a chance encounter in the summer of 1845 that led him to his most known work. Dr. Sims was summoned to a home just outside of Montgomery, where a 17-year-old slave woman named Anarcha had been struggling in labor for 72 hours. The baby was stuck, and Sims used forceps to deliver it. Unfortunately, the baby did not survive. But the ordeal left her with a vesicovaginal fistula. Sims wrote, quote, Of course, her life was one of suffering and disgust. Death would have been preferable. But patients of this kind never die. They must live and suffer, End quote. There was no cure for this at the time. He reported to the slave owner that, quote, Anarcha has an affliction that unfits her for the duties required of a servant. She will not die, but will never get well, and all you have to do is take good care of her as long as she lives, end quote. Over the next two months, two more indentured patients, named Betsy and Lucy, were referred to him with fistulas. Sims had little to go on, as there wasn't much in the medical literature on gynecology, let alone this specific problem. 
He realized that to repair the fistula, he'd need to see it, and so fashioned a sort of duck-billed retractor out of a pewter spoon purchased at a hardware store. Sims, on first using this speculum, stated, quote, I saw everything as no man had ever seen before. The fistula was as plain as the nose on a man's face, end quote. This would go on to be known as the Sims speculum, which is still in use today. Sims set up a makeshift operating room in his own eight-bed cottage hospital, or so it states in his autobiography. Others believe it was just steps from the state capitol building and the largest slave market in the state of Alabama. Sims requested that any slave owners in the area send him any of their slaves that suffered from vesicovaginal fistulas. The agreement was that Sims would provide them with food, clothing, and shelter, while the slave owner would continue to pay the property taxes on the women they owned. Let's take a minute to talk about how vesicovaginal fistulas are formed. These are abnormal connections between the bladder, that's the vesico part, and the vagina. Almost always they are a complication of vaginal deliveries that fail to progress. The baby's head will trap the soft tissues of the pelvis up against the pelvic bone, cutting off the blood supply and the tissues will die. The wall between the bladder and vagina, or if on the other side, the rectum and vagina, will break down and an abnormal connection between the two will form. This leads to urine, or feces if it's a rectovaginal fistula, to uncontrollably leak from the vagina. Women would be ostracized from their friends and families and would essentially become recluses, unable to leave their homes. And this has been around since antiquity, with the earliest record being the Queen Heninid, the wife of the Egyptian pharaoh dating back to 2050 BCE. Her mummified body underwent an extensive anatomical examination in Cairo in 1823 when the fistula was discovered. From the mid to late 1840s, Sims operated on 12 to 17 enslaved women, some of whom he later trained to act as surgical assistants. Many became addicted to the opium he would give them to ease their pain and slow down their bowel movements, which might cause them to break their stitches. He perfected his instruments and techniques by continually operating on these women. Sims made an improvement on the position of the patient during the operation, now known as the left lateral decubitus position, or Sims position. This is when the patient lies on their left side, with their left leg straight, and the right knee and hip flex pulling the leg up. This improved the operator's ability to visualize the fistula. Maybe I'll put out a tweet to show you. Now, Anarcha herself was operated on at least 30 times, often in front of an audience. Some sources state that these women were typically forcefully restrained during the operations. Sims eventually realized that he needed to use a stronger material to hold his repair, and on June 21, 1849, he used fine silver wire on Anarcha, which was a medical breakthrough. On post-op day 7, he re-examined her and found that the fistula had healed perfectly. Now, Sims was not shy or reserved about this accomplishment, stating, quote, I realized the fact that, at last, my efforts had been blessed with success, and that I had made perhaps one of the most important discoveries of the age for the relief of suffering humanity, end quote. Before we leave this chapter of his life, let's quickly review what made his operation a success. Access and exposure through the Sims speculum and Sims position, cutting away the lesion and damaged tissue, the use of silver sutures, and the use of a catheter to ensure continuous drainage of urine after surgery. In fact, he developed an S-shaped catheter which was meant to stay in the patient, or self-retaining, for this purpose, after experimenting with a number of designs which became known as the Sims catheter. Following a flare-up of one of his health issues, chronic colitis or dysentery, he convalesced and wrote up his findings. This was published in the January 1852 edition of the American Journal of the Medical Sciences in a paper entitled, On the Treatment of Vesicovaginal Fistula was actually reprinted and is available in modern literature. I gave it a read. Like many articles from the time period, it reads more like an essay than a scientific paper organized into sections as we're accustomed to today. 
Sims describes and takes credit for his speculum invention, along with some hand-drawn diagrams, as well as describing his silver sutures and crediting them with his success in treating fistulas. In fact, he was known as a bit of a self-promoter, and would later claim that the use of silver as a suture was the greatest surgical achievement of the 19th century. Sims also describes his struggles with forming a self-retaining catheter to drain urine in exhaustive detail. One final interesting aspect is his description of the use of laudanum, or an opiate, after the operation to keep the bowels quiet as these drugs are constipating, but doesn't really address the idea of pain control, or at least primarily. Following this period, Sims moved to New York City in May of 1853 with the hopes that the more northern climate would improve his health. While there, he strongly advocated for a specialist hospital to be dedicated to the treatment of gynecological diseases. With the support of socially prominent ladies through the New York City Common Council, enough money was raised to open the women's hospital on May 4, 1855. Sims performed his first fistula operation in New York on a young Irish immigrant woman named Mary Smith. He was able to cure her in one operation, and Mary went on to work as a nurse in the hospital. Soon the hospital was inundated with patients, often traveling great distances for the operation. And fistulas were repaired at no cost to those without means, which in New York was a blessing to the large, poor Irish immigrant population. But again, some have argued that he was experimenting on these destitute women that had no one else to turn to. Now, in 1861, at the outbreak of the American Civil War, Sims found his practice waning, so he went to Europe. He soon gained some fame among the upper class, treating the Duchess of Hamilton, the Empress of Austria, Winston Churchill's grandmother, and Empress Eugenie, the wife of Napoleon III. Sims set up private practice in England and France, and by 1866 published a textbook called Clinical Notes on Uterine Surgery. In September of 1868, Sims returned to New York City, taking a position at the newly relocated Women's Hospital. Unfortunately, the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in Europe complicated his efforts to bring his family back to America, and Sims wound up creating and acting as the Surgeon-in-Chief of the Anglo-American Ambulance Corps during that war. One important observation he made treating the wounded was that operative exploration of penetrating abdominal wounds, such as from bullet wounds, was a key to survival. In fact, when President Garfield was shot by an assassin, Sims cabled this advice to the treating physicians from Paris. It was ignored, and the president died of his wounds 69 days later. Eventually, Sims was able to return to the Women's Hospital in New York City, where he worked until November of 1874, when he resigned due to some disagreements with hospital policy and with some of the other leading physicians working there. One issue was that Sims wanted to allow admission of cancer patients, but was resisted due to fear that it was contagious. They also wanted to limit Sims' audience to 15 observers, which he objected to. The following year, Sims was elected the president of the American Medical Association. During his career, he also served as president of the New York Academy of Medicine and the American Gynecological Society in 1880. Sims later returned to Europe, where he made another contribution to surgery. On April of 1878, Sims operated on an American woman with jaundice, meaning she had a yellowish appearance from an increased amount of bile in her system. Her gallbladder was distended, so Sims cut it open to remove some stones and then placed a drain into the gallbladder, thereby performing one of the first recorded cholecystostomies. A similar case was reported in 1867 in Indianapolis. He published this case in the British Medical Journal, and it soon became common practice. In fact, it's beyond the scope of this podcast, but he made many contributions to surgery, both general and gynecological. There is no doubt that he was one of the most prominent surgeons of his time. Now, during his time in New York, he frequently advocated for a hospital to focus on the treatment of cancer. In a letter from 1882, he wrote, quote, a cancer hospital is one of the greatest needs of the day, and it must be built, end quote. 
four years after his death, this wish was finally granted with the creation of the New York Cancer Hospital. This would go on to become Memorial Sloan Kettering Center for the Treatment of Cancer and Allied Diseases. J. Marion Sims died on November 13, 1883, of a heart attack at the age of 70, a day after performing a complicated surgery. He's buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. So let's talk a bit about his legacy. Sims, for decades, was considered the father of modern gynecology, a champion of women's health, a surgical innovator, and was admired widely. His methods have only recently come into question, essentially asking whether the ends justified the means. So the two main arguments are as follows. First, that it was unethical by any standard to perform experimental surgical operations on slaves, because slaves, by definition, could not have given voluntary informed consent for surgery. The second is that Sims did not use ether anesthesia during these operations, but did so routinely later in his practice on white women in New York. So let's first talk about consent. Now, did these enslaved women truly consent to these operations, or were they coerced by their owners, who brought them to Sims, and by Sims himself? Now, it is likely that they did not feel they even had the choice to decline these operations. And remember, this was not an established procedure, but rather Sims was conducting experiments on humans with no oversight or informed consent. But Sims defenders point out that these women had much to gain from these operations, given the debilitating effects of a fistula and the absence of any other treatment options. It is certainly possible that they wanted the surgeries and may have understood the risks, and Sims states as much in his autobiography. The other issue about anesthesia must be considered in the context of the times. Remember the bulk of his work on fistulas was done in the latter half of the 1840s, around the time the ether was first demonstrated publicly in Boston in 1846, see podcast 2. Would it be reasonable to expect Sims to be familiar with anesthesia during this period? Some articles argue that the use of ether and later chloroform were not widely accepted at the time, and his use of opium would be considered up to the standards of care. Although there is evidence that Sims bought into the belief that African-American women had a naturally higher pain tolerance, part of the systemic racism built into medicine at the time. And it is likely that his later use of anesthesia while operating on white women in New York was more based on the chronology of the introduction of anesthesia into surgical practice, rather than a willful choice to withhold it from his earlier patients. Now, Sims was the first medical professional to have a statue in his honor in New York City in 1894. It was first in Bryant Park, and then later moved to Central Park, where it now stands across from the New York Academy of Medicine on Fifth Avenue. This summer, protesters gathered in Central Park to call for the removal of the statue, a position supported by the New York Academy of Medicine. And there are two other statues of Sims, one in Columbia, South Carolina, and the other in Montgomery, Alabama. A state health department building in Columbia, South Carolina bears his name. Interestingly, doctors at the Medical University of South Carolina, which I'll remind the listener is Sims' home state, have publicly acknowledged Sims' overt medical racism. And a number of academics believe that his research on enslaved patients was dangerous, exploitative, and deeply unethical even by the standards of the time. Now, while this podcast has typically looked at the history of surgery with an admiring eye, I think the lesson we can learn here is that it's important to look at the history of surgery, and really history in general, with a more critical eye. I very much enjoyed reading the arguments from both sides about Sims' legacy, and I think this type of thoughtful debate makes the study of surgical history all the richer for it. And one important point is to not only remember the surgeons that created medical breakthroughs, but to also remember the patients that were a part of these discoveries. In this case, we would do well to remember the names of Anarcha, Lucy, and Betsy. Alright, so let's finish off by talking about the state of vesicovaginal fistulas today. In the developed world, access to obstetrical care, and in particular cesarean sections, see podcast 15, have virtually eliminated the problem. But vesicovaginal fistulas, or more broadly obstetric fistulas, are still an issue in the developing world, 
Here are some facts from the World Health Organization. More than 2 million young women live with obstetric fistulas in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, and 50,000 to 100,000 new cases occur each year. The main ways to prevent them from occurring in the first place include delaying the age of first pregnancy, stopping some harmful traditional practices, and having timely access to quality obstetrical care. But the good news is that if they do form, 80 to 95% of these fistulas can be repaired surgically. Now, there are a number of charitable organizations that do this type of work. I'm not going to specifically endorse one, but if you're interested, I encourage you to look them up, check them out, and consider supporting them if you're so inclined. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I thought for the next episode, we should cover a field of surgery that I haven't touched on yet, ophthalmology. We'll talk about Dr. Nicholas Harold Lloyd Ridley, an English surgeon who invented the intraocular lens for cataracts. The inspiration for his invention is a great story, as is his life in general, so be sure to tune in for that one. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.